0: Hello friends, Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist, and welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast, and I'm coming to you as always from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. You know the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news, and I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care, by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant but not famous, and while the not famous part is ironic because they are all well-known and respected in their field by their peers and in the communities that they serve, but my next door neighbor might not recognize their name. So they really are brilliant and committed to their work. And I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and the work that they're doing. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope that some positive things come from me sharing their stories with you and to the universe. So today I'm really excited to have on my show Uh, Dr. Uh, Chike Daveney. And Dr. Daveney is Chief Health Equity Officer at the, uh, the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And he's also Associate Director for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center. He holds a faculty appointment as a professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine. And he's a leader in the RAISE initiative focused on recruiting new faculty who have a research focus on health equity topics. Dr. Dominey received his Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery from the University of Lagos College in, of Medicine in Nigeria. And after some training in the United Kingdom, he com- completed family medicine residency at Duke University and a preventative medicine residency at the University of Massachusetts, where he also earned a Master's of Public Health degree. So, Dr. Domini, it's so great to see you again, and welcome to the program. Well, thank
1: you. That's a bit like
0: listening to your life. This is your life. <laughs> it is your life. And it's funny because you've been to a lot of the play. We'll talk about it. but You've been to a lot of the places that I've been. So our 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 our, our footsteps have crossed paths many times. It's kind of interesting. So, um, including the University of Massachusetts. But um, let me let's start by having you uh, tell us a little bit of, about yourself. And I always like to say, like maybe tell us like the uh, about the younger uh, Chike Albany. Oh, that's that will take about 10 years to do so. But uh, <laughs> let's go to the short version of
1: that. Short version. Short, short version. Of no, I, I grew up um, in, in Nigeria, so I like to tell people. Um, I think I'm like the modern version of Tarzan, like you see in the movies, because <laughs> I grew up in, in fishing camps in, in the Ijo area of Nigeria where um, we went fishing, um, farming. And at the same time, going to school. And as I think back to those days, uh, it's been really fascinating. And then going from there to uh, what we call secondary school, um, or grammar school, then, and then ultimately to university of Lagos, where I eventually got my medical degree. So, um, you know, playing soccer, um, canoeing, swimming in the river um you know fighting or battling malaria and diarrheal (laughs) diseases you know so i I think it's it's really interesting how you look back and reminisce about those times and and many times miss them i tell you one thing i missed though dancing in the rain (laughs) sounds like a movie doesn't it it does it does yeah
0: (laughs) So dancing in the rain uh, with with your friends by yourself or in what context we dancing in the other, rain? Other kids, when it it's Nigeria in the tropical area, of course, it
1: rains a lot. It's either raining or you it's so hot that you're sweating, need need an handkerchief. And when it rains, we'll we'll go outside and just play in the rain. And my mother will say, You're gonna get sick, and of course, you know, you get sick with malaria and other things, but um uh, it, it was so much fun to do so, and I really miss those days where we can go out and just get wet in the rain. Have you shared those stories with your kids? You know, I shared some of them with me, and of course, kids will say, Dad, I've heard that story before. Stop telling me the story.
0: <laughs> <Okay>.
1: <laughs> now, the one story that it, they've heard before, and actually my daughter found that funny, is that um, back in those days, from the fishing camps to the school, elementary school specifically, uh, in those seasons, we'll canoe to, to school. And mm. every now and then the canoe will capsize and you know all you have with you will get wet. But it didn't stop me. It didn't stop anyone else. We were passionate to learn. We were eager to learn. And our families uh, felt knew that learning and education was really important for us. And so um, even as I look back, um, you know those were fun days
0: it seems hard to people but
1: fun days and maybe we didn't know any better
0: yeah i think a lot of us experienced that we 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 went through difficult things or what maybe look back on as difficult things as kids but but that's who we are that's that that has shaped who who we are as as adults now so I, i i love hearing those stories and you come from a large family, you you mentioned you come from a large, complicated family. We won't get into all the complicated part because <laughs> I have a very complicated family myself. <laughs> but but we do say you have a large family. So you have a lot of siblings and extended family. Yeah, I
1: okay. do. Yeah, we have I have a large family back home. Uh, in the United States, I'm fortunate to have a wonderful wife who I call from small town Pennsylvania. And we have a blended family and uh, really excited uh, that my kids are doing well. And uh, we're doing great things. Awesome.
0: That's awesome. Now, did you always, did you always, uh, I know your your family sounded like they were committed to education and it was important to you and you love to go to school, even if you were soaking wet from tipping over in a canoe. Um, but <laughs> did, you, did, did you always want to, did you see yourself as becoming a doctor? Well, not at all. I mean, mm. you know, so healthcare was, um,
1: was, was a distance kind of luxury for us. Yeah. Um, Many times our teachers were the same person as a healthcare person. We looked at the wounds and other things we had, provided penicillin and malaria medication for us. We had essential drugs that we had in villages in the dispensaries. And um, there were instead of these so-called role models that we're looking after. So I'll tell you that um, in high school, I was fortunate to have been doing very well, specifically in math and science, more math than anything else. And when it was time to, to make a decision or choose what I wanted to do in the future, and, and I was speaking with my principal at that time, Mr. Thompson, he said to me that, "Chike, you should do either engineering or medicine. And I said, oh, maybe I should. As a matter of fact, you should perhaps be a plastic surgeon. Uh, that was probably a bit of a stretch, but. Um, That's what then I sought out to do. Talk about the influence of your teachers, right? Mm. That was really the forming moment for me in terms of my interest in medicine. I began to realize what I could do as a medical doctor at that time.
0: And here we are. That's amazing. Decades later, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, when did you make the decision uh, to... Come to the United States, and 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 what was that like when you when you first came here? You know,
1: Dave, that's a very very interesting question because um, as a kid in Nigeria, um, as a kid growing up in a village in Nigeria, uh, we always looked at the West, United States, as very 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 distant. Of course, at that time, growing up, um, even in the Biafra War, the tail end of the Biafra War. Um, we received literature from the West and from China and Russia, and we read those things mm-hmm. habitually. And so there was always this dream. And I knew more, of course, about England or UK than I did of the United States because of Nigeria as a commonwealth, part of the commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of this may be serendipity, but I do think that part of the influence had to do with, um, other people in our cohorts of medical students, but also relatives who had been to the West. And so hear stories about their experiences and you know what they are doing. My aunt, for instance, um, um, did a master's in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so I think a lot of those things got me really interested. So I, I came to the US by way of um, the Caribbean and the United Kingdom. Um, at that time, I was really very interested in training so I could go back and help my people. Mm. But that training was focused on the common plastic surgeon at that time until I saw the light, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that light guided me to this moment, I guess, one of these very moments. Uh, but no, I, United States was seen at that time as sort of the land of milk and honey. But also a place where I felt I could get training uh, to be what I wanted to be um, and to serve community. Um, and I had great experience in the UK, uh, but then saw this as the next opportunity to grow,
0: to come here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and so beyond Duke and UMass, you also spent time at at UPenn and the Mayo Clinic and in Scottsdale. So tell us about that journey of of you know sort of making the decision and what type of practice and what kind of interest that you had in family medicine and preventive medicine
1: yeah so i i would take us back to ashley wilson north carolina after my training at duke i had spent mm-hmm. time at the community health center and i tell this story because uh, back then i was completely oblivious of the concept of health disparities or health inequities and everything was um you know, the land of milk and honey and promise, right? And, and I think in Wilson, North Carolina, I was smack in the face, within the eyes, and with what were the inequities, people who did not have access to care, um, who had these structural barriers or so a system as ingenious that makes it difficult for them to get access to care, even when they had the ability or the interest or willingness to do so. And so I became very interested in the area of trying to learn about health disparities. At that time, like you as an evangelist, uh, I actually literally wanted to change the world, right? My goal was to go and train so I can be part of a solution in addressing health disparities, uh, providing access to care, meaningful access to care to people. So that's part of the training or journey to Massachusetts. I trained to become a researcher for academic medicine, as you as you swear. And after that training, I was fortunate to have early successes. I'll tell you one of our earlier papers specifically on mammography for cancer survivors it was syndicated across the country, a globe, in over five, 700 outlets, news outlets. That was my first exposure to media. Uh, we can talk about how that went <laughs> later um, and and i and I think the rest of the journey has been um my my own journey and my own determination and will to bring my own personal contribution to, to that interest of addressing health inequities and I'll tell you just like health inequities are uh, created by meandering of um, barriers and obstacles, um, and so has my journey been. And and I've worked really hard not to be um, stopped by any of those obstacles, but yet look for ways in which I can find partners and collaborate and gain help when I need it. And. Um, Lean in when I when I have the opportunity to do so, but also encourage others to do so because it's going to take us village for us to do this. Exactly. It's going to take a village. It's going to take commitment a village. But I've always through this journey uh, known that we actually know the path to this. you know we say it's like solving world hunger. actually we don't have to solve world hunger to address health inequities. Uh, we, we need to solve it in a meaningful way but we can still get there without that sort of um, concept that, you know, we're going to solve world hunger. So it's impossible. We can actually do it. Yeah, sure I we can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I know we, when we first met, I talked about how I am, you know, personally am getting investing in this because I want to be an ally too. And used to feel like, well, who am I to, you know, you know, be part of the solution. and And, and yet I feel like, I can be part of the solution and i want to be part of the solution and and the stories you had mentioned north carolina and i know that you had uh sort of a shocking experience when you try to refer a patient you know and you really saw that that you know even within the provider community there were people that that were had racist feelings about treating patients which i i just and that wasn't even that long ago And uh, you know, and for, to me, that's still shocking to me. And it's still I, I I I can't wrap my head around it. I really can't. You know, as a as a white man, I just I can't imagine why people don't all agree that everybody deserves access to the same level of care that I could get, right?
1: And you know, I'll I will share with you, and I've become a big fan of uh, at least this piece by Margaret Mead, who is a famous mm-hmm. um anthropologist in Watertown, Boston, Massachusetts and and i can't do justice by without reading what she actually wrote in a piece called this i believe which is part of that npr series Mm -hmm. and margaret mead said something along these lines that every human being has a potential to be anything that would dream a human being can achieve irrespective of the color of their skin or their race but once you're raised in a particular way um you become what that weighs but also she said something else all of us have an intrinsic goodness in us but also an intrinsic not so goodness in all of us and what manifests in the process of what we do is a function also of how we're raised but our own experiences and i say this to say that um um, In my view, this is not being about white or being about black, but it's about looking at common purpose areas in which we have shared value and interest. Um, The issue of health inequities is not actually in in the big picture, black or white issue. Yes, there are elements of that, because when you talk Mm -hmm. about racism, racism has systematically weakened a particular group of people through cumulative stress over time, cumulative oppression over time, cumulative disadvantage over time, redlining, financial disadvantage, educational disadvantage, economic disadvantage, issues of privilege over time or lack lack thereof. But that said, if you look at rural America, there's enormous disadvantage. So imagine if you had a combination of these things, it creates systematic disadvantage. You know, talk about the cancer, you spoke about lung cancer. Black people, black men in particular, have the highest rate and highest highest rate of incidence and mortality. And yet, in theory, they smoke less, which I actually don't believe is true. But uh, but I do think that this tells you how these things transcend race. I, I know these things are going to be there, but we have to all work together as a people to be able to solve this. I can't solve this without you. And you need us to solve this because in the end it's in our common interest that everybody has a just and fair opportunity to be the best, to be in the best state of health that it can be.
0: I totally agree. Thank you. The, the very love the way you articulated that. And I totally agree that, uh, when I, I have a brother who lives in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina and. It, I've been in Charlotte, by the way. You, you heard my story about Charlotte? No. Okay. Some other time. Okay. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> Sorry about that. What I was going to say is that uh, we went down to visit, and we my my son was looking at the University of North Carolina, uh, so we went to you know Raleigh-Durham, and um, and then we drove to the Outer Banks because yes. while we're here, we're, we might as well just do it. But once we got sort of into the rural part between Outer Banks and Charlotte, it was, or uh, Raleigh Durham, it was shocking, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the lever of poverty that we pass through these, these little towns in between. And then you get to Outer Banks and it's like these ginormous beachfront homes. And I, it was striking to me the difference between the haves and the have nots. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's here Boston too. But, oh, yeah. But to me, it was just really striking. And I, and I'm thank you for pointing out that I, I agree that it's not just a, it's not just a black and white issue. It's, Certainly, people that that don't have access to Mass General like I do, or have good insurance like I did, or you know, or have support from my family like I did, and I speak English and all the different things, mm-hmm. um, it, it is it's it's a much deeper thing. But thank you for allowing me to be part of it and to work with people like you to you know to solve it. Well, I'd love to have you. And you mentioned the mammography study, but I'd love to have you. I know uh, we were introduced by uh, Dr. Carbone, David Carbone. Yes. Um, at Ohio State um, who for my listeners he's the runs the thoracic um, oncology program at, o- at Ohio State and I know that you've done some work in lung cancer and and other areas so I'd love to have you share any of the, anything that you're really proud of that you've done whether it was at, at Mayo Clinic or at Ohio State or okay. some of the some of the some of the work that you're doing in, in health equity I'd love to have you share with us. No thank you for that opportunity to to talk about lung cancer because um
1: You know, we've done extensive work on colon cancer and and really eager to apply those lessons to lung cancer. Um, Lung cancer is one of those conditions in which, for most of them, I I know we can prevent them or detect them early. And and so it shouldn't have these big, big gaps, but also, the amount of death that we experience is caused by tobacco for the majority of cases, for, for instance. So I will point to our listeners a number of uh, things that I think are really important. One is the screening guidelines. I was fortunate to be in the US Preventive Services Tax Force, which makes evidence-based recommendations to improve the health of all Americans. And the tax was some last round of recommendations lower the age to initiate screening, but also the number of pack years. That should be considered in, in for people to get screened for lung cancer. And and the good thing about lung cancer screening, although it makes it probably slightly more complicated, is a requirement for counseling to prevent or to reduce uh, ongoing smoking because smoking is by far the most important risk factor. Um, there's one paper we did which I want to share with our listeners, and <laughs> because I'm a family doc, and as a family doc. I see myself as one of the front lines of um, care uh, in the interface and people come into care when you're still well or you want to prevent disease. You see a family dog, an internist, or a pediatrician as for children, and family dogs see all of them. And unfortunately, the, the uptake of lung cancer screening hasn't been to the level that we want it to be. And so we did a paper, for instance, that uh, looked at the steps involved and how lung cancer screening can be implemented. And studies have shown that it can be implemented well in primary care settings. So you know, like here, one of my dreams is, is to get that implementation of lung cancer screening, but also smoking uh, history and smoking cessation counseling and treatment in primary care to be more routine and easier to do. Um, the other work that I'm really interested in doing, Dave, is about understanding the difference between rural and urban areas in terms of uh, screening for lung cancer. And this is because, to your point earlier, you know, when you get out of the urban areas, the distances to care begin to increase right, uh, over time access to facilities like telehealth telephone or telecommunication resources begin to sort of essentially fade away and hopefully we will rectify some of those and lung cancer screening requires a level of expertise that you can't really have at many of these smaller facilities in rural areas so telehealth and other things can help uh, so-called project echo types of things can also help Um, And so these are areas I'm really passionate about. And the one area is disparities, going back to disparities. (laughs) um, I talked about the fact that the death rate among African-American men is um, highest among um, uh, people, subgroups with lung cancer, diagnosis and death. Uh, And yet, few of them in proportion to white people would be eligible for screening using the current criteria. And so, while we're trying to address this through the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, it's really important for us to get that criteria right, so that we can select people who are at risk, and and not use methods that end up um, creating that disadvantage across groups.
0: Yeah, that I I remember reading about the changes. I read a publication. I think it was um, Dr. Inge-Lenas. At Mass General had written a paper about the changes were good but not not good enough or something, but have, have those changes that were implemented a few years ago, have they, I, I know that they were, I, I, from what I understand, it was to try to help that disparity with, with um, African-American um, patients, but has it has it not, do you think it's had an impact, or? It's probably or,
1: too early. It's too okay. early. I think, they, they, so they I'll share with you that, um, One of the reasons I'm interested in, maybe because I'm attracted to to things that are solvable but are difficult to solve, right? They're solvable, but they are somewhat difficult to solve because of uh, um, the current processes that we have in place. So in the electronic medical records, so I'll give you two examples, colorectal cancer screening. You are eligible to get screen because you are 50 years or 45 years now of age. Straightforward, you're 45 years old, you should get screened. This is the way it is in lung cancer right? screening. You smoke 20 packs right, per year over the last 15 years, or you quit over the last whatever, but you quit 15 years ago or less, then you're eligible to get screened. So that means that I need to know your smoking history I need to know how long you you smoked, how many packs you smoked, when you quit. So the more variables you have to put into the electronic medical record, the higher the chances that it's not captured accurately. And unfortunately, smoking history, despite the best efforts, remains an area in which capture is very limited. And so these are some of the areas in which um, we need to make advances really fast. Even the President's Cancer Panel um, took up this issue. And I think we need to put technology to bear. We need to work on this and keep working on it to make it better so we can capture it, make it a quality metric that physicians and clinicians ask to perform well on until it becomes so. I think it's going to remain challenging, but we're making progress.
0: It, is, it, is, it a, is it the primary care or family physician not capturing or is it the patient not sharing or is it a combination of those two
1: things? It's a combination, it's a combination. Imagine you go to an office and see somebody, right? And you have uncontrolled diabetes. Perhaps if you're not smoking currently or that is not at the forefront, it's not captured well, but we need to be able to capture that consistently. When it's captured, it tends to be accurate, right? But that tends to happen to people for whom there's a reason to capture it versus do this routinely. So if you have COPD, we're going to take that good If you But lung cancer, we're going to do that. But sometimes it's a little late. We want to be able to do it before any of these things begin to come up.
0: Yeah, and one of the other things too, and you're you're much smarter than I am, so I'm I'm going to ask you this question oh, because I'm trying to figure this out. Nothing so sure <laughs> <laughs> that you know. I'm always curious, you know, and I know that because uh, addiction to tobacco is one of the biggest risk factors for you know getting lung cancer but of course there's still that 15 to 20 percent of us like me who who didn't who never did smoke and you know the the screening rates for those who are eligible from the task force that you were on and if only five or six percent of people are getting actually getting screened that's just pathetic and that is just that is unacceptable yeah. but what about the folks that you know that i read a lot about a lot of like younger women getting afflicted with the lung cancer um and not having symptoms until mm. later stage. So I just, I'm just trying to understand like that, that part of it. And like, cause it's certainly with colorectal cancer, it's an age thing, right? And lung cancer, yeah. it's not an age thing. You're not going to get screened for lung cancer because you turn 45. Yeah. Uh, but what, how do how do you address those? Cause that's a significant number of patients. Yeah. You know, that's still 20 to 30,000 patients probably a year yeah. um, that are getting <laughs> lung cancer that never smoked.
1: Yeah, lung cancer is one of those um, things that can be devastating, right? And, and mm. so, and the earlier we catch it, we know that the better people will do. And and for those who don't have the so-called risk factors or the factors that were used to triage for screening, um, and at this time, it's about being 50 and 20 pack year history, you quit for 15 years or less or still smoking currently. Um, we have to be alert to symptoms and unfortunately to your point when people don't fit those traditional categories it can lead lead to delays in diagnosis because oh you don't smoke so you shouldn't get but that is your point is really an important one for our listeners that it's not all about smoking smoking is really really important but it's not all about smoking and anyone who experiences symptoms that could suggest something wrong with the chest, you're coughing or losing weight or coughing or blood, you need to have that evaluated by a doctor. And, and especially if you have a family history, for sure, you want to make sure that that is taken care of uh, clearly. Because um, uh, this is the thing about algorithms, right? We kind of select our people based on common things, but there are also a lot of other things that happen that don't fit that algorithm. And it's just having that high index of suspicion, or making sure patients receive prompt care for symptoms they they present with.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, so you've come a long way from Nigeria to Ohio State, and you've you've. How long have you been at Ohio State? Oh, I've been here for a long time.
1: i in seven months. No kidding. I've been here for seven <laughs> I months. I thought you were <laughs> relatively new there.
0: <laughs> so tell tell us what your tell us what your uh, you know most excited about and you in your in your role in your new role at, at ohio state you've had an amazing journey but here you are now um leading a very important at a very important institution um and of course you know how state it's in columbus and ohio is a very there's a lot of rural parts of of ohio for sure uh but tell us what you're most excited about and, when, and what you hope to achieve in your new role Yeah, hear it me? was that
1: was that my connection?
0: Yeah, you, you froze for a minute. Oh yeah, it happens. I'm so yeah, no sorry. worries. Did you yeah. you did you, you were able to hear me though? Yeah, so, yeah I, so I heard the first part of it. I'm in Columbus, Columbus, and I said there's a lot of rural parts of Ohio and challenges in, in Ohio, but you're at a very important institution. So can you yeah. tell us tell us uh, what you're most excited about uh, in your in your new role at Ohio State and what you what you hope to achieve? No, I'm, I'm really in
1: my role, I, as you said earlier, I am, I am the chief health equity officer, um, which means that I lead efforts around DEI broadly, including accessibility um, for the Ohio State University, which is the premier state institution in the state of Ohio. And, um, you know, I'm really excited to be here to help lead. Um, work around uh, advancing health equity, uh, addressing the structural barriers. We have now put together an uh, initial uh, form of the strategy around five key areas and um, looking to implement that. And those areas about, uh, broadly speaking, inclusion, or we'll call it include uh, care as in um, being inclusive and high quality care. Then the next one is co-creation, which is uh, community engagement. Um, the, the, the fourth is about research or innovation. And the last about advocacy or call champion. And I'll tell you one thing though, uh, we've made a lot of progress and we were fortunate to receive the Spencer Foreman Award from the WMCA um, for community engagement in, in, um, in nationally uh, in the state of Ohio. So I think that. We have African-American population here that's about 29%, 30 or so in the city of Columbus and in the state it's about 13% and to your point there's a large rural section of the state including Appalachia and we have an opportunity to develop strategies to address uh, disparities or inequities across these populations and at the same time address the structural issues of uh, racism and other challenges that we have all collectively working to, uh, to improve. Um, I, I will close out David by because this, this is important to me to, to share with our listeners. Um, there are two things that I, that, that I'm really, I really think important. One is about the quality of care. You know? so we have to have the highest quality of care possible. And that quality of care, highest quality of care possible has to be accessible to everybody or everyone. Without those two things combined, we really can't achieve the ideal of health equity.
0: I 100% agree. I I say it all the time, you know, to, for me personally, as an ally, as someone who wants to help create change, uh, I feel like, Everybody deserves access to the highest level of optimal health care period I, I it's to me it's just it's just it's just the right thing i mean it you know when I first got into healthcare, I was working in financial services before i before my cancer diagnosis and and once i got sick I realized that I wanted to t- I I didn't care about that anymore I wanted to do something I could make a change so I mm-hmm. went into patient education because my relatives are from rural Minnesota mm-hmm. uh in fact my my Aunt Lottie you know was from uh war, lived in War Road which is on the Canadian border you know mm-hmm. up past the uh, the Native American reservations and sort of this Tundra land up there where you're 300 miles from Minneapolis mm-hmm. what about those people they deserve access to care but there's so many barriers for them they were they were poor and they going to the twin cities was a big deal that was like that was like a you know so yeah. i get very passionate about this as well so i like the way that you you, you put it in those simple terms it's not simple the solution's not simple but yeah. but i love the i love where you stand on it, and i'm i'm really grateful for for the work that you do i'd like to to i i always ask my guests one last thing I, outside of work not to put you on the spot but <laughs> you're, a funny, you're a funny guy, so you're not going to worry. About, I'm not worried about you. <laughs> Outside of work, tell us something that you're passionate about or people that, or that people might not know about you.
1: Actually, before I go there, David, one more thing I wanted to say in addition sure. to those two things, which is um, that we shouldn't return people to the conditions that created made them ill in the first place, right? So best quality of care, accessible to everybody, because it's not accessible, you're not helping the situation. But also people should not be made to return to the conditions that caused them to be sick in the first place right the so-called social determinants of health well said oh um what is it I, so i i just like to do random driving uh <laughs> um and and you know so i'll tell you, when i was in arizona this, this was like the land of that was it, i was like a kid in a candy store on saturdays i, I have my the back of my vehicle stocked ready in case I get stranded I've got a sleeping bag I've got (laughs) some food I've got some water I've got some diet soda so just all the little things that I need I get in the car and I just drive and somewhere along the way I put in the GPS someplace I'm going if I can't find somewhere and and I I'm a big fan of national parks and and I wish I had all the time in the world I would just spend it going to each and every one of the national parks To visit and to see, they're just wonderful treasures for us Mm -hmm. as a country. And I travel a lot. I come back to this country and I say, wow, what do we have here? I'm fortunate to be here and I want to be part of what we're doing to
0: be a better world. I love that i love that we my wife and i were just out in arizona so i've got this visual of you driving in case you get stranded out in the desert somewhere you know like yep
1: <laughs> and it gets cold at night
0: or it gets hot during the day it gets cold yeah. at night yeah. uh, we and we went to sedona talk about just just glorious what a glorious right. place that was and yeah my wife and i are also big fans of travel and we and we love the national parks and you know going to like yosemite or to you know uh some of the other you know, yellowstone or whatever they're just There's just so much bounty of of beautiful places that they are truly treasures so yeah well thank you so much for being on the on the show uh and 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 thank you sincerely for the work that you do it's it's truly an honor to meet it's an honor to meet you and and to start this journey with you because i hope we will stay connected um and um you know thank you so much for everything i really appreciate it well thank you for what you do you're making a big difference